Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I am the one who knocks. <laughs> what? <laughs> Bre- Breaking Bad. That's what we... Uh, is that what, what we watched this week? Oh, you, you, watched, you watched the wrong one. Damn it. What's funny is I just saw Argyle last night, and Brian Cranston is in Argyle. Um, does he not? I wish better for him. <laughs> he does not. Know. Actually, that's not true. He does knock uh, on a door at one point. Oh, um, mm-hmm. there you go. And there's like a surprise reveal that's Brian Cranston at the door. So, uh, um, can I yeah. can I take that again then? <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Hi, I'm Josh. Good. <laughs> I thought this was the whole plan, that we were going to waste the rest of our lives together. And that's not even the line that I had ready. That's just what I thought we were doing on the podcast. <laughs> Hi, I'm TJ. Uh, with that, welcome everyone to Serious Film People. This is our series, uh, continued series of the 1979 films nominated for Best Picture at the 52nd Academy Awards in 1980. And this week we're taking a bit of a breather after last week's episode. Catching uh, our breath. Yes. After uh, Aster Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. This week we're talking about English director Peter Yates' Indiana set coming-of-age comedy Breaking Away. Peter Wait- Peter Yates is English? He is, yes. That's funny to me, given like the <laughs> anti-Europeanism throughout this movie. <laughs> Also, that's, that's very Ken, funny. You said you said Indiana set, which is understating it a bit. This is aggressively Indiana set. <laughs> yes, it's it's set in Bloomington, Indiana, around and on the campus at Indiana University, where it was shot. My wife saw him on her. Yeah, oh. yeah. Shout out to Katie. That's yeah, right. Shout out to Katie for sure. I didn't know. I, I know you're about to ask what our history with the movie is, and I'll just go into mine real quick, which is that. I didn't know anything. I, I, I was barely aware this movie existed a week ago, but when I was firing it up, I just like pulled up the Wikipedia page just so I could like, you know, center myself a little bit, a little bit before I started watching it, just to get a sense of like what I was about to turn on because I really didn't really know. And I saw things like Bloomington, Indiana, and Indiana University, and Little Five Hundred, which are all things that I'm very familiar with because uh, my wife went there, so that was fun. Did Katie watch with you? The, the, uh, she watched bits and pieces uh, Not much though um, I, I told her that had I known What this movie was beforehand I would have like planned it out better Such that she could have watched with me She could have guessed on the podcast uh, But she declined all of those things <laughs> But I, um, I will have a question for you a bit later Because we'll have to dive into it I'm curious whether she's at all familiar With how the interaction between The students and the locals the uh, cutters yeah. the cutters yes the, well that's something else we're going to talk about because apparently that is a term that did not exist prior to this movie yes Stonies, well they were really trying to make fetch happen in this holy <laughs> shit did they say cutter a lot well according to the wikipedia page the the local town folk in bloomington at the time were called stonies but they didn't want to put that in the movie because it was too close to stoners mm. so they changed the word to cutters is what i heard what i read rather i mean were, were they not like I, I guess TJ went to college in St. Louis, so like the local town folk are, are St. Louisans, so it's not St. Louis isn't really like a college town, but like Kirksville, Missouri, or I mean, are the local Kirksville residents like? Is there any animosity towards the college kids or anything like that? Uh, not or not vice a, versa. Not a lot of animosity. I mean, not really. Like, there's the there's the 
I guess the term townie does pop up once in a while or locals. Oh, I definitely heard that in South yeah. Bend for sure. hundred um, yeah. percent. Townie is definitely a term, but there's no specific word. I don't, uh, I don't recall for anybody local. Obviously we're talking, what we're talking about is the fact that Bloomington normal at the time was, uh, had been famous in the early to mid 20th century for its limestone quarries. And a lot of guys working in the quarries and obviously, you know, pulling stone out and slicing it, cutting it. And so, in the movie, they refer to them as cutters because it still works. But stone the IU like... students, the IU students refer to Correct. local people as cutters. Yes. Right, and in in reality, at the time, the IU students refer to them as stonies. After this movie, apparently, both terms were used. Oh. Cutters have been has been adopted. They made uh, fetch since... happen. Yes, they did. Well, and you know what's funny? And I, I didn't. This it didn't occur to me till just now. But people in St. Louis also have a term for people we, from Indiana. We do. Yep. That's right. Yes. Well, well, it's a term that everybody uses for for people from Indiana, but it be, it kind of took on a different meaning in St. Louis. In Saint, yeah, if you're if you're from St. Louis, uh, the term Hoosier is oh. a derogatory term. Hoosier means like redneck, yes. or like uh, you know backwoods person or something like that. And um, it, it didn't. It wasn't until I left the city of St. Louis that I learned that that's not a general term throughout the country for like a redneck but it's only a st louis term because apparently i think people from indiana moved to st louis some decades before we were born and like i don't know worked at the chrysler plant or something in fenton and like people in st louis were like those are outsiders hoosiers or whatever i but, i'm only partially I, I don't know if i should be fully ashamed to say this or not for a long time growing up as a kid i thought the movie hoosiers before i ever saw it was a film about basically think winter's bone but set in indiana i thought it was like a, dra- a film about white you know redneck <laughs> white trash white people. poverty yeah <laughs> white rural poverty <laughs> which it kind like, of is <laughs> hoosiers kind of okay anyway tj what's your what's your history with breaking away just about to say yeah tj what's your yeah. background yeah i had heard of this movie through our shared old film teacher um mr mark cummings he was a huge, huge Breaking Away fan. I believe this came I'm not, out. I'm not surprised. To hear, he, I think he was probably a senior in high school. When this came I, out. I think he was. Yeah, I yeah. think that these guys were his age when he was that age, and it was a big, important movie for him. And the reason that it actually came up was this would have been 2006. Uh, Jackie Earl Haley was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Little Children, and that was seen as like a, um, you know, the the Earl Haley assance and. <laughs> I remember Mr. Cummings mentioning Breaking Away and just that Jackie Earl Haley was in that and how much uh, how much he liked him in that film and how happy he was to see him back and hoping that he would win an Oscar for Little Children, which he did not. Uh, he lost to, what do you have lost to? Alan Arkin. Alan, yeah. Alan Arkin. That was the year. The, Argo, fuck yourself. Yeah, that, was, <laughs> that was Little Miss Sunshine, not Argo, but it was that still. Was, that was also the year. Going into it, people thought uh, Eddie Murphy might win the Oscar. And when he didn't, yeah. he got angry and left. <laughs> he pulled a Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> Only real. And Mark Wahlberg was nominated that year, too. What's the matter, smartass? Yeah. You don't know any fucking Shakespeare? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What's your history with Breaking Away, Ken? Yeah, so I was aware of this film. I've never, I'd never seen it before I watched it for the podcast. It's always been something that's been kind of on the periphery. I, I've been aware of it. It's never really been. I can't say that it's been on a list of, like, oh, must watch. Um, I always used to get this film and Chariots of Fire confused because they're both amateur sports films Hmm. um, from the same, roughly the same era, um, ironically. And one's very British. The other's just directed by a Brit. Very Midwestern, though. This one is 100%, as TJ said, Indiana. Um, 
And yeah, so I had never seen it before. This is an upcoming new to this one. Uh, just a real quick peek into the letterbox section. Someone on letterbox said it's basically chariots of fire, but with slightly worse music and a way better everything else. That's <laughs> what this person said about breaking away. Mm. Yeah. So you're not alone there. So what's the, what's this movie literally about Ken? What's the setup here? You know, I was going to ask you this question because <laughs> oh, I can do it. There's not a whole that. lot. There's not a whole lot going on. Um, I can, I can attempt briefly. We've got, a, we've got Dennis or Dave played by Dennis Christopher. Who's, the de facto lead of the film and his three friends. They're all about what nineteen years old, I think. Nineteen, I think. Yeah. Shortly, 18, shortly, basically the first year out of out of high school, really. And uh, none of them are going to college at the local university, Indiana University. They're all from Bloomington. They don't really have jobs. Uh, they kind of resent the idea of getting jobs, or at least a couple of them do. Um, well- when one of them gets a job, he quits like immediately yes, within like just, five seconds of getting the job. Just effectively. because the boss basically chews him out for being late. By the way, yeah, and, uh, and, and calls him short, which is calls him short. A no, no, yes. yeah, that's do not a call Warshak short. Yes, Moocher. Yes, Moocher, played by Jackie Earl Haley, and you've got uh, you've got Cyril, played by Daniel Stern, who's basically the comic relief. This is the first film time. debut, right? Yeah, I mean, of uh, Daniel Stern. He was in this, and he was also in another film this year called Starting Over, which has a couple of Oscar nominations as well. We'll talk about. Part I of feel the recap like episode. I don't know what start. I don't know what Starting Over is, but could you could you switch the titles between Starting Over and Breaking Away? Because this could be called starting over. Uh, you, you know what? You could actually because Bert, okay. because starting over is about is Burt Reynolds separating from his wife and getting with somebody else. <laughs> so you could you could switch the titles. <laughs> but he breaks away from his wife. Um, and you've got uh, you've got Dennis Quaid, and I think his first big role. And God, is he an annoying little fuck? Um, oh, wow. Not, I don't, wow. Oh, screw it. You don't him. like Mike? No, his character sucks. Um, coming out guns guns blazing there against Mike. Yeah, no, we're going to talk about him because I just oh, well, can't stand his character. Dang. What I said the movie's about is four guys living in, a co- living in a college town without college aspirations, and then they enter a bike race. That's what the movie's, yeah, to, that's to, what the movie's literally about. To compete with the college guys. Yes, um, and then there's there's more information that fills in the the uh, some of the character development, particularly surrounding Dave, who, as I said, played by Dennis Christopher as the lead. Uh, he is obsessed with cycling, and when we first meet him, he is obsessed with Italian cycling and everything yes, Italian. Yes. He wants to be Italian. Yes. He's, yes. He he speaks in partial Italian. He listens to Italian opera. This is not your usual nineteen year old. Oh yes, it is. Let me jump in here. Here's why. <laughs> You all did not go to St. Louis University, which I did. And St. Louis University has a um, study abroad program with a Madrid campus. And every fucking person who studies abroad at Madrid comes back and is like, oh, I wish I was still in Madrid. You know, in Madrid, they have siestas. Everybody naps. It's so relaxed. We should be like the Spanish. You know, in Madrid, they have tapas you know in madrid everybody sleeps it's called barcelona i wish i was in madrid i'm like i fucking wish you were still in madrid too and it's and you know everybody in madrid hates you right now because you are the drunk americans that go over there this is not a unique phenomenon to st louis university i'm sorry to tell you because i I understand (laughs) my point is my point is ken saying this is not usual this it's is not, not. People are. Yes, yes. This no, is no, how no, people no, are. No, you're talking. Okay, you're but did this guy go to there. Rome? Did right. this guy go to Rome exactly. and come back? No, and was like this, this. No, this, he was just like this, living in Bloomington. This adolescent period where you're like you're defining yourself based on some sort of culture that you see as higher and more sophisticated than 
the dead and dying of your home little town, but that you actually don't really know anything about, you're at best a tourist of, I think is something that's very, very true to, to I mean, this age. It is, it is a little, it'll, he's just, it's a bit immature, a bit infantile. At the time. I mean, he's, he's so obsessed. That's pretty much how he lives by. It's frustrating his parents, particularly his dad, really, um, who we also will have to talk about. Paul Dooley playing Dave's dad. Um, I, also, not. I can't say that I like some of the characters in this film that you kind of have to come to rely upon for the story to work. They're not always that great. Um, the, I, I pulled this from something. I, I read a few reviews out of curiosity after I watched this, and Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel both really liked this film at the time it came out because it was original, unlike a lot of the franchise I'm, stuff I'm even surprised. then. Yeah. And Ebert described the characters in this film as complicated but decent. I don't know that I completely agree with that. Which part? Compli- I, I, I don't think they're. I don't. Th- well, I don't think either. I don't think they're particularly complicated. I think a lot of them are trope characters, um, or stock characters. They they're they're not very fully fleshed out or developed, and a few of them aren't very decent. If I'm being completely honest, including Dave's dad, who is a used car salesman in every sense of that term. Unscrupul- and, and the unscrup- unscrupulousness that comes with that, yeah. And openly discriminatory against Italians. Yes. Yeah, I don't know how many- he doesn't want anything ID in his house. That's no. like not just cringe in terms of that it's ethnically uh, showing no tolerance, but it's like, we all right, we get it. We get it. Yeah. Like they go to that well about five too many times in the first 20 minutes. It's rough. <laughs> yeah. It is it is a difficult difficult uh, sit with some of these characters. Uh, before we dive into the movie, though, I want to talk a little bit about Peter Yates, the director. Okay. Who Josh, you learned he's he's originally from England, but to to your point, he kind of made his name making films here in America because his first big film was Bullet from about mm. a little over a decade before this, nineteen sixty eight, starring Steve McQueen. Uh, one of the great uh, car films of all time, particularly the, one of the great uh, car chase sequences. Uh, he also uh, directed The Friends of Eddie Coyle, which is a film that I think the three of us have talked about. I can't remember if on the podcast or just off the podcast, um, but is actually a pretty good film that I kind of like. Uh, it's Robert Mitchum. Yes. Late period Robert Mitchum. Yeah. Uh, Robert Mitchum's fantastic in it. Um, this is the first of two films Yates directs that gets him picture and director nominations. The other being 1983's The Dresser, starring Albert Finney. For those who uh, were listening in, we talked about Tom Jones, the star of that film, about 20 years after it, uh, in a film called The Dresser, which I know very little about, and it kind of sounds, just off, just from the from the surface level, it sounds a little bit like an early Phantom Thread, but I don't know. Mm. We'll find out Do you out think eventually. it's like, is he somebody that, like, dresses people or do you think it's about like is the titular dresser a piece of like furniture a bur- like a bureau yeah, yeah. like uh, a hope chest the shiffer robe i don't i don't think it's that i think i think it has to do with clothing and fashion okay. um other not not just a place to keep them uh either uh but yeah yates yates is making a name for himself uh on the american side of the pond and it's interesting he chooses to to make a film like this because it is a film that is very much of its location and its time, but very much of its location and the people who reside there. And Peter Yates is obviously not from Bloomington, Indiana, or anywhere near it. So no. it's an interesting choice for him to make this film. It did pretty well. We'll talk about it a little later. It got a pretty good um, box office uh, take from audiences, and it obviously did pretty well because we're talking about it 
on this podcast about best picture nominees and effusive uh, critical praise effusive yes criti- yeah, critics really i think it's like a 91 this. on metacritic or something really effusive huh. it is uh on the services i mentioned at the top it, it's a comedy so it's it's a lighter uh lighter subject matter which is interesting there are a lot of choices yates makes in this movie um i'm thinking once at the quarry when they're swimming there are times in this film where there's like legitimate danger there's a chance for the 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 characters in the film to get seriously hurt or injured or they in some cases they do get injured nothing ultimately bad ever actually truly happens to them hence it's still a comedy there's still the well they hurt their dignity um yeah i would argue they don't have much of that to start with though um (laughs) ow (laughs) yes well let me say this there's a scene and i'll get to this in my notes but there's a scene where um dave begins to woo a young student at Indian University named Kathy. And so he stands outside of her, her sorority house singing to her in Italian while Cyril plays accompanying acoustic guitar. And uh, don't do this. <laughs> I, I wrote down, I don't, I don't recommend this. Don't do this. And then Cyril gets beat up by the local hoods at IU and he deserves it because because they, part in that travesty Ow. because also it's interesting poor cyril they they think cyril's the guy who's serenading kathy because i'm glad you brought that in. i wanted to throw this out there dennis quaid's then wife pj souls is the blonde in the dormitory with kathy who the calls snitch yes she's the one who calls the boyfriend to she notify the boyfriend him. Says, yeah. Hey, Cass getting serenaded right now. That's Dennis hey, Quaid's then wife. Watch Winter's Bone and learn our national no snitching policy, lady. <laughs> here's here's the thing I love about that scene. When we see her, she turns towards the camera and she's got her she's got the phone to her ear. The last time most audiences would have seen PJ Souls before this movie is probably the fall before when she's being murdered by Michael Myers, who's strangling her to death with the co- phone cord as she was talking to Jamie Lee Curtis. I just love that little bit of like, oh yeah, you are only good for appearing on camera, talking on the phone, and this time we might let you get away with it. That's it. Like put Drew Barrymore in a movie in 1998 where she has one scene on the phone or something like that. Sick. It's like what that's like, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's... Wait, is she, is, she the, is she the girlfriend who gets killed by Mike Myers who's wearing the sheet with his glasses over yes, his face? Yes, that's correct. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, that's her. Yep. That's it. Fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah. um, also, can we just... Kathy's not very bright, is she? For a college student, <laughs> his accent's not that she, good. I think that's a part she, of the point of the whole movie, too, though, is, like, the college kids aren't that smart. Is it yeah, a point maybe, of the movie? Yeah. They're, like, they're... They, they say it pretty directly a couple times. Those college kids aren't that smart. I just sold the this used car, et cetera, et cetera. Nor are the locals, though, because these guys aren't that smart. <laughs> Suggesting that's... nobody's very bright. That's a larger point I was going to make is that there's some unkind things said about Italian people and about like Europeans in general and about the college kids. So like the the dad says about Dave, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but like, you know, he never went to college. I'm glad he never went to college because, you know, whatever, like that'd be make him do a bad person or something. I don't really know. But like it's a. And then, like, the college kids, when they show up at the quarry, they have, like, Speedos on, <laughs> which is, like, a European style of bathing suit. So there's, like, a lot of, like, uh, distrust of European culture throughout this, I feel like, from the, from the Midwesterners. It's just, like, kind of, like, at the heart of the movie is, like, a just general Midwestern distrust of European culture. Yeah, actually. Yeah. And also also from Yates, I mean, we do get Italian, the Italian cycling team that Dave is obsessed with 
does appear finally in the film because they come visit Indianapolis for a bike ride that Dave participates in. And he's so good that he manages to catch up with them. And they turn violent, like yes. attempted murder level. Like he could have been seriously, seriously injured in their encounter with one another because they take a pipe and stuff it in his wheel well as he's riding his his bicycle. Like Yates doesn't have much much positive thinking when it comes to the Italians either. He's kind of like Dave's dad, I think. Yeah. Ah. Uh. <laughs> well, can I start with? Uh, can I get into the movie? Yeah, let's let's. Do you remember the opening image and or opening scene? Uh, yeah, well, that I I do know it starts with Dennis Quaid's not great singing uh, as they're kind of hoofing it through the, the woods to get to the quarry, right? The opening image is like the quarry. Well, I, I noted the opening image was cut stones, which became a quarry. And we later learned that like this quarry is a result of, the, of like decades earlier, them like cutting out limestone in order to build the university. Which is kind of like thematically purposeful, I guess. But mm-hmm. it opens with four friends walking through the woods, talking, asking Dave if he's actually going to shave his legs. And he says, all the Italians do it. And then someone says, some oh. country, the women don't even shave theirs. Which, again, it's is like just, by the way. It's just right character. The bat with the, uh, <laughs> hitting you right off the bat with the distrust of Europeans. But also Dave's obsession with, obsession with it. And um, I, I think that... I don't know if this is the opening scene or shortly after the opening scene, but another quote is said, which is that uh, when you're 16, they call it Sweet 16. When you're 18, you get to drink and vote and see dirty movies. What the hell do you get to do when you're 19? Which I think is kind of like also kind of the point of the movie. Like, we, we didn't ask TJ what this movie is actually about, but I think it's about like the ennui of, uh, you know, becoming a grown adult and kind of the in-between time between – Finishing high school, having a bunch of structure, playing basketball, playing football, and then you get to adulthood and like there's kind of nothing left besides just get a job. And notably, Mike's song, Dennis Quaid's song that he's singing at the start of the movie, is like about them getting fired from the AMP or something like mm-hmm. that, <laughs> like not having jobs. So this is that's how we begin. I think it's also a film about like knowing or realizing who you are and accepting that, because from the start, Dave obviously wants to be Italian. Uh, none of them are particularly settled in Bloomington. Like, Cyril has an inkling for wanting to take the test and possibly go to college. Moocher's parents are off in Chicago. Seemingly where they're going to stay, he's just back to sell the house. So theoretically, he could follow them. Uh, Dave wants to go off riding his bicycle, and Mike is just kind of wallowing in the fact that he peaked in high school as the quarterback. Yeah. Well, l- later Mike mentions Wyoming. And how, yeah. like, in Wyoming, you just need, like, a mattress pad and a horse, and then you don't need anything else, and there's, you know, you can be your own man. So that's kind of like, I don't know, he just kind of wants to get away from it all, I guess, and not be in a place where he needs to have a job, I guess. But, um, I, so I, I took a lot of notes in the first, like, half of the movie, and then very few in the second half of the movie, which I think is telling. But another thing I wrote down in the first half is, like, they're driving through campus in, yes. their, in their, like, hot rod. And um, they're just kind of admiring the college kids and the college women. And someone says, they look like they got it made. And then Mike says, that's because they're rich. And so it's kind of like, you know, they, they, they live in Bloomington, but like the good life is just out of reach, or at least the way they see it. And then yep. later, like they're watching, they're watching the football team practice. And like you said, Mike kind of peaked in high school. Mike played football in high school. And he said that, you know, it. He, he laments that it's not fair. There's like a new quarterback at IU every year and he has to read about it in the paper. 
And he says, quote, these college kids, they never get old or out of shape. A new one just comes along every year. And like, meanwhile, I'm just 20 years old, you know, or something like that. So which that reminded me, excuse me, um, that reminded me and a lot of this. I feel like Richard Linklater loves this movie. I was just the. I wrote that down too, and Letterboxd also really noted that too. And I just want to say that I noted the Richard Linklater comparisons before I read that in Letterboxd. Just want to say that up front. It feels like a Linklater. It it feels like a precursor to Dazed and Confused. According to Letterboxd, it's one of Linklater's favorite movies, and I absolutely believe that 1000%. Yes. Um, If for no other reason, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but that line sounds a lot like the uh, um, high school girls. They stay the same age. I keep getting older. They stay the same age. Yeah. That sounds very, very similar. Very much so. You know who else I think really likes this movie? Because um, if I had to describe this movie, it's Coda as directed by Alexander Payne. When mm, when Alexander Payne said he was trying to make the holdovers a 1970s movie, I think he was thinking a lot about this movie, especially if you consider the last shot of the movie being a freeze frame on someone's face being like, hey, which is how the Holdovers trailer ends, basically. Um, I think I think the Holdovers is a better movie than Breaking Away, but I think that Breaking Away is in the DNA of the Holdovers. I could see it. Yeah. yeah. I, I will talk. I mean, we'll talk about our feelings. I'm not particularly infatuated with this film after having sat through it. Um, I can see, though, where a lot of films that come after it built onto it. It's a film that certainly has a lot of uh, elements and a lot of, I think, uh, a lot of spirit that other directors or directors of the time period. We talk about Mr. Cummings being of age at that time. This film did really well at the box office, probably very well among college age students and high school students to some degree because they're, they're seeing themselves possibly in the movie. And so any filmmakers growing up during that era probably reacted to it. And so you get the link letters and pains of the world who, even if they're not always making a film about youth or this time period in your life, they're still being inspired by it and what it's saying about, it. because to, 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 the, to its credit, one of the best aspects of the film is actually every time we visit Dave's mom, she's a more, she's a, actually a very interesting character. What she has to put is up she? with. I think she is. I don't. I don't completely understand the nomination. We'll get there. Yeah, she was nominated for best supporting yeah. actress. Barbara yeah. Barry is good, is, but I don't understand why the damn. Does, does she have ten lines? Yeah, not even this? one of which is her defending cooking zucchini. Yes. <laughs> uh, that nomination and the role in general reminds me a lot about of uh, Jackie Weaver in Silver Linings I Playbook. Say, I was. I was going to bring that up. Too, um, and yeah. I don't know if maybe like that it was engineered by harvey weinstein no i mean like that it was kind of a hey barbara barry you've been around for a while and a lot of things and we really like you and we like this character in this movie but it is kind of a beguiling nomination even though i do think she does a lot of work even outside of those lines she has some great facial expressions when she's kind of tiptoeing around her belligerent and frankly stereotypical husband um yeah she i i I mentioned or i bring her up only because Watching her throughout the film, I get the sense of more of a real person or a real character. I think she she fills in and lives the part more than the others who all are serving some kind of, like we talked about earlier, they're serving some kind of trope almost for the film. They serve a function and they meet it. She, on the other hand, is reacting a little differently. She's a little more open, a little more progressive than her husband for sure, and a little more understanding of her son and his friends. 
and is also seemingly a little more aware of the reality in which they're all living. Like, they're all kind of putzing around. The boys seem wanderingly, wandering aimless. They, they don't necessarily know what they're going to do next. The husband's just constantly upset and angry about the son. And, by the way, his job is that of a used car salesman. And he's eh, not that great at it, by the way. Uh, she, on the other hand, is the only one that seems to be fully in the know. And even then, she seems to also recognize the fact that she's not all-knowing. It's not like she's she she could she's the type of person that strikes me as potentially having gone to the Indiana University herself. Her husband did not. He's proud of that fact. He was a cutter. She strikes me as somebody who probably could have gone to the gone to the university, studied, and for whatever reason she didn't. And she's a stay at home mom and housewife, but she's pretty good in that role. Quietly supportive she, yes. of her son, who's gotten the gang support elsewhere. Another note I took, because you're talking about the dad, uh, I've noted it multiple times now, but Day's father is suspicious of the, of, of uh, Italians and the Italian culture. Um, he says uh, he he's turned off that his, his son got into this, I think he says, ID stuff in, yeah. in terms of Italian culture. And um, he says, why should he go to college? I never went to college. When I was 19, I was working at the quarry. He's horrified by Dave shaving his legs. Uh, he says, I won't have any Eni in this house, in reference to zucchini, fettuccine, uh, rotini, whatever, whatever it is that he's, he's the, saying. The he cat wants, he wants American Fellini. food. Yes. Well, the, Fellini. The cat. He, he, want, he wants American food being French fries. Yes. <laughs> That's what he keeps yeah. asking for. <laughs> um, yeah, the cat's name, he, the dad says the cat's name is like Jake. My Jake, cat. Yeah. My, my damn cat. His name is Jake. But both the mom and Dave refer to the cat as Fellini. Yes. Which is, I what originally named Cooper Ingmar Bergman, but. <laughs> <laughs> what else is going on? Uh, like, Mike wishing he could still play football. Cyril at one point mentions offhand, like, he used to play basketball and said he thought he was going to get a scholarship, but then didn't. And so, again, like, that kind of struck me. It was a really simple short line that wasn't really expanded upon. But, like, the idea that, like, you know, when I was growing up, I played I played soccer until I was 14. I played basketball until I was 14, then got cut by my high school team. I played baseball until I was 17. And then just you, you just kind of stop doing those things when you get to adulthood. And, you know, he he's at the point where, like, it stopped recently for him. And it's just, like, disappointing because, like, I used to I used to play basketball. And I used to be, like, a big part of my life. And now I'm just, like, walking around Bloomington, and I have a guitar that I barely know how to play. Mm-hmm. And that, that scene leads into him practicing his guitar so he can help dave serenade kath but you know on that note josh you know we've talked a lot on this podcast about how seeing a movie at a particular time makes a huge difference and that can be about a time in your life as in kind of age or point of development you know that i saw citizen kane first when i was 15 and i think that's really too young to appreciate citizen kane um this not necessarily that one has to be 33 in order to appreciate this movie but I happened to watch this the two days after trying to teach the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock to my juniors. And uh, it's it's like one of my... Should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the sea floor. Yes, the scuttling across the floor of silent seas. Yeah. Um, okay. Which, which, that's one of those lines that now when I was 18 didn't mean anything to me and means a lot to me now. And uh, I was talking to the boys and as they were just vexed by this poem... And I tried to explain to them the bit where he talks about, sorry for, this is TJ's literature corner, uh, where he talks about uh, having faced the doorman, you know, and recognizing that all of these kind of lives that you had in your mind 
and living those are, are gone and that they don't understand when you're 17 you still kind of think i'm going to be shohei otani i'm going to be patrick mahomes and no you're not you're going to yeah. be probably a lot like your dad and maybe get married and have some kids and then end up being a good grandpa and maybe sell cars for 30 years and you're going to live a pretty good life and be a good person but it's going to be pretty unremarkable and that's okay and i think that's a lot behind this this movie um uh, yeah, yeah. So that was on my mind a lot when I was watching it. And I, I, it resonated with me in that way. What I remember from Proof Rock, which I was taught when I was, I think, 16 by Steve Missy at St. Lucie High, was that it's a very long epic poem, the first half of which is like kind of hopeful and like building towards a decisive moment of like confessing your love to somebody and the first half is like there will be time, there will be time, time for you and time for me and the second half is like after he's rejected and it becomes a lot more about like i i will grow old i grow old i will walk the beach with my trousers rolled so it's about kind of and so like these guys in this movie are in the front half of proof rock still Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and dad dave's dad is in the back half of proof rock Mm -hmm. so uh i think that's a very interesting interesting take that you just brought in yeah good poem oh hot take t.s Eliot. love song jam proof rock good poem and again (laughs) sorry we'll get back to the movie i promise but uh not a poem you are everyone should read it when you're 16 because if you don't you're never going to read it but uh come back to it because it was taught to me when i was you know 17 and then maybe when i was like 21 and it wasn't really until i had to teach it and i was in my 30s that i was like oh wow this one hits this one hits when i was in high school and college i had an mp3 of t.s Eliot reading that poem on my ipad on my ipod back when ipods existed so i have listened to t.s Eliot with his faux posh british accent let reading us go that poem. then you and i as the evening goes the yellow back s- against the sky <laughs> the yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle upon the window panes the yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes my question we make this a proof rock pod, proof rock pod? <laughs> well, yes. my question no, coming no, back no bringing this back though do you think as effective as, as the poem is do you think that this film is as effective in getting that point across I know that you feel it, or you're um, you're you've just you've just taught the poem, so TJ, it's fresh in your mind. But do, are you getting that from this movie? No, but I guess to really try to drive my point home. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm going to make another literary reference, but I'll make it shorter. <laughs> it's a lot like the two times that you read Catcher in the Rye when you're 15. You're like, yeah, Holden, yeah, everybody's a phony, and then when you're 30, you're like, settle down, bud. It's going to be okay. Um. And I think that the text of Breaking Away, when you're when you're in it, it's a very buoyant movie. It's a very buoyant yes. movie. It's like that movie is summer. I can smell the sunscreen. Um, but on the other side of 19, and I think there's a little bit of this in the Yates direction, though it's not very heavy, is there is some um, uh, ennui about... Not not that there was kind of missed opportunities, but that 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 moment of optimism that you have of wanting to be something else and wanting greatness is a really precious thing to have at the moment because very quickly, like reality is going to set in about the day to day. And so it's it's kind of nice to be able to see that distilled and preserved because they're right on the cusp of, um, oh, yeah, you punched out the you punched the clock. Haha, <laughs> good for you. What are you doing next? You know, which is an interest. You're, you're referencing Moocher. That's an interesting. Um, that's an interesting character in the film, actually, because Moocher is the one that we see in the film 
decides to set up and get a job um, and, and get married. And well, I was going to, that's where I was going next. Not only is he going to get a job, he's doing it out of some sense of responsibility because he wants to marry Nancy and they actually do end up getting married. Uh, it is a rather childish back and forth over like, do they have enough money to get the marriage license? They need $5 for the marriage license. She only has four. So he pulls out like a wad of ones from his pocket and says, let's go Dutch. Yeah. Like they're about to buy a Hershey bar before going to see a movie or something, <laughs> getting a marriage license. Also, how are you not prepared for that? Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, they're, they're basically living in his semi-abandoned home. Um, like Nancy's coming over to visit him fairly frequently. We get that idea earlier in the film when we first encounter her visiting him. Yeah, because his parents are in Chicago. Right. They, that's where the jobs are, right? That's where yeah, the jo- his dad's, jobs. Yeah, his dad's and, looking and for a job, I guess. But either way, we do get through exposition that they check in every once in a while because his dad wants to know whether he sold the house, whether the house is sold. So yeah, he's, money's tight. Yeah, yeah he's clearly yeah. living in a house, which we see. There's not much in the house. Like, it's very barren. Uh, there's, like, basically sheets over the door, the windows and stuff. Yeah, he basically just has like a bench press rack, and yes. that's it. He's just, he's in there doing doing bench and, and nothing else. That said, Moocher is the only character we actually see, I feel like, in, in the movie, in the context of the movie, uh, who... Make moves to grow up. Exactly, is attempting to Even move Even though to he's living step. in an abandoned, his, his abandoned child exactly. at home. Yes, yeah. he's not, it's not ideal, yes. but he's at least making those, those steps. Versus yeah. like Mike, who is almost res- violently at times resistant to and and he's 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 channeling a lot of that resentment of well i don't know where i'm at or where i'm going i may have i may have maybe beyond my peak is what he's thinking and he channels that into hatred of the college students particularly the the frat guys and the football players um and it causes like they they have a fight at the bowling alley in large granted moocher's the one that throws the first punch because they call him short but mike's the one that brought them there in the first place to track down the frat guy wanting to start a fight. Well, okay, so that's the thing. So that's kind of the, like this is like 40, 45 minutes in, and it's kind of the first like plot machination, I think. Because again, Dave meets Kathy, the girl at IU. Uh, she drops her notebook and he picks it up and like trace you know, chases her on his bike for several miles and returns her book, pretends to be Italian, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe against better judgment. Yes. And uh she kind of takes him a little bit because he's like a, a foreign exchange student. How exotic. And uh, he serenades her with Cyril. And then the frat guys beat up Cyril thinking that he was the one doing the serenading. And then Mike and the gang go to the bowling alley to track down these frat guys to like possibly retaliate for beating up Cyril. And then because of this brawl that happens in the bowling alley, uh, the president of Indiana University brings these frat boys into his office and says – you guys need to be nicer to the town folk here in Bloomington. This is our home, not just a place that you are for four years. And I guess because of this, he says, this year we're going to let a team of town folk into our little 500 bike race that we hold every year. And then the back half of the movie is them kind of training for and or preparing for this bike race that then ends the movie. And I have so few, I have so fewer notes in the second half of the movie than I have in the first half because it's, it becomes kind of less interesting to me, but I I have a yeah 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 I have a com- a screenplay complaint which I'm not usually that guy. Um, <laughs> this wins best original screenplay, and yes. I have three complaints. One, that's like an eight second scene. Um, yes. <laughs> two, okay, fine, plant that earlier. 
Like in the yes, first five-ish minutes, they should have said something about like Dave's like, I could show those college guys, you know, if they would let me race in that 500, I would beat them all or whatever. This is the first, ne- never, never whisper something like that. It's the first time no. we hear about this, right? And then yes. also in the second half for a movie that like then kind of becomes a sports movie and ends in a race, which I, I want to get to later because I really like the way that yeah. parts of the race are shot. Um, not, they don't really spend much time training. No. No, no. Yeah. Dave, only Dave. To be clear, only yes, Dave, Dave is the yes. only one. Which, which, well, that was their plan. Their whole plan is, oh, Dave rides his bike <laughs> everywhere always. So this two hundred lap race, yeah, we'll have Dave run most of it, and we'll kind of just fill in the gaps here and there occasionally. But you could have at least still had them like. I just I just watched Nyad, which is not a great movie. But at least you got Jodie Foster there sitting by the pool for eight hours. Like yeah. I'm your friend, I'm gonna be here with you, sort of thing. These guys, it's just kind of like, oh, we found a bike that the pedals aren't on, and you know whatever. So where it goes at the end and the climax, where we're kind of like all trying to cover for Dave because we're all in this together, I don't think has the emotional impact that it could or should have because you don't see them invested in building up to it earlier. Okay, your point about the investment, I think, is maybe the biggest issue because this is a stakes problem that you're describing. A stakes problem. Because obviously the stakes in the second half is this race, kind of, but like, what are the stakes of the race? What happens if they win? What happens if they lose? I was thinking a lot about Rudy watching this, the college movie, the college sports movie made about my college town. And that is also like, uh, you know, a blue collar kid who lives in like the general vicinity of this university, but that is also about like the. The haves and the have-nots, like the, the the rich, smart kids that go to Notre Dame versus, like, the steel workers that work in the area surrounding Notre Dame. And, like, he kind of – but there, that's, like, the text. And, like, he is, like – some he is looked down upon, and he is, like, aspiring to be a part of that. And, you know, his, his father doesn't believe in him. And but like he gets in the game at the end and like he gets the respect of the team and he gets the respect of his dad and he's carried off in glory. Like that's clear stakes to me. And none of that. None of that is here. But in all fairness, Josh, you always think about Rudy. Josh walked out of zone of interest and texted me. It made me think of Rudy. <laughs> that's not true. That's although, to zone of interest. I would not <laughs> to although we can rectify I think what we said earlier in actuality this dynamic between university and townies it only happens in the state of indiana folks bloomington south yes. bend it only happens there is i think josh's point <laughs> um no but i if we could touch on that because not only i don't think it's not only the stakes i think josh you're nailing it by the way i think stakes is a huge problem with the second half of this film i think there's also character development issues because the arc for these characters isn't much like it's sudden it's no. rather short Mike has a brother in the film who is a local cop in Bloomington. Apparently really the only cop, I guess, because uh, he responds to everything. He's also in the president's office at the university when the president basically tells the frat guys, we're going to bring in some locals to race too. He has a wide jurisdiction. <laughs> so played by John Ashton, by the way, for anybody who likes the Beverly Hills cop franchise, he plays Detective Taggart. And I guess when we've, I think he's supposed to be back in the, fourth iteration this summer of that film on netflix or that film franchise i should say but john ashton plays mike's older brother and they clearly butt heads because mike is just kind of dithering away his days he's out of high school he doesn't have a job he has no prospects of what he's going to do and john's trying to keep order in many cases between the townspeople and the university students um and at the end suddenly there's this wonderful family embrace because mike i'm using air quotes here 
helps win the race. Like the guys really don't do much. In fact, they lose ground. Mike did the least. He he did the least of the four people he, in this race also, by a long shot. Also, I've got a complaint about that. You were a quarterback, and Dennis Quaid's really showing off the bod in this movie. Uh, He's playing Patrick Swayze. He's uh, playing Dennis Quaid as Patrick Swayze as Mike was my note. You're you're telling me that he didn't have the aerobic capacity to at least be on that bike longer. Like, come on, man. Hey, he was he was a, a throwing quarterback, yeah. not a running quarterback. He was Tom Brady, not Lamar Jackson. So let's you know, be, fair is fair. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. Pro- I, I don't have a problem with the fact that they're not necessarily able to keep. Like the other three aren't able to keep up in the race. It's just. For a character that, for so much of the film, as we talked about, he's like he, he pushes them away at one point because he's so irritated and upset with himself and his position and the fact that he's afraid he's not going anywhere. But he's so proud of the fact that he was the quarterback. And, of course, we get to the race and he's the only one that doesn't want to actually participate. And he holds yeah, off. When, and holds when off. it becomes his turn, he's like, oh, it's my turn to race? I guess we're just going to lose because I'm not going to do this. Right. <laughs> Even though he's the one that entered them in the contest because he wants to beat the frat guys, he doesn't want to participate until the last, absolute last second. And it suddenly yeah. makes everything better and let's embrace and have the brothers embrace each other. Where is that arc coming from? I don't, I don't see anything because he's still a douchebag at the end of the movie as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> So you mentioned arcs and the lack thereof. I, I guess like the one arc for, for, for Dave, like he's really into cycling, really into Italian culture and pretends to be Italian in front of Kathy. And then he's actually hesitant to enter the little 500 race. L- little five is what they call it, by the way. So l- little five is what I'll refer to it as. Um, he's hesitant to enter little five just because he does, he does, it would reveal his secret to Kathy that he's Italian and not an Italian exchange student. So he doesn't want to do it. And then like, as you mentioned, he's riding with the Italian race team when they come through Bloomington for some reason. I don't really know why they come through Bloomington at all. But um, uh, and then like his spirit is broken when they like reject him. So he's just kind of like sad for a while. And then he gets uh, he and his dad walk through campus in the second half. And this is like one of the few notes I took in the second half. Which I thought was a good poignant scene where, as I kind of alluded, his dad says that he used to cut stones and he cut the stones that built the campus buildings. And then he says, but then the buildings were too good for us. I'd like to stroll campus and look at the limestone, but I'd feel out of place. And he says that the quarry that the boys have been swimming at for the whole movie and is like their one escape that, you know, when they get they get mad when the IU students show up at the quarry and they say, what are they doing here? Uh, Dave's dad says the quarry is the holes they left behind and 20 years of work because that's where they lift the rock from that became the campus. So it's like the boys swimming in a, in a void left by the development of Indiana university in their local community, which I thought was poignant, but like one of the only poignant things in, in the back half of the movie or throughout the movie, honestly. Yeah. Also because partially because Dave doesn't really learn anything. Um, no, really. Doesn't I mean, seem like it. Where does, no. how does the film end Josh? Oh, uh, well, the, the, We'll come back to the bike race, but they do win the bike race, and I, I don't know what that means or what, what the stakes of winning that was. It's like, good for them. They, they prove their medal against Sigma Tau or whatever the frat was. And then um, Dave enrolls at IU and becomes an IU student, which is great. That's that's a nice little coda. Um, and he, he meets a French girl, an actual French exchange student, and or suddenly he's saying... saying <laughs> <laughs> or, or is she? She's probably she's probably a cutter, honestly. But uh, but then the the movie ends with Dave 
riding his bike with this French girl saying bonjour and like saying French things now and then says bonjour to his dad passing on a bike. And his dad looks in horror at his son now adopting a different European culture. And as TJ alluded, we end, the, we end on the freeze frame of his dad's horrified face at, oh, gosh, now we got the French in this in Bloomington. And, which and which is ironic because his dad likes French fries. That's true. Yeah. The, the thing the thing was, he's just at it again, basically. He's just yeah, in a different yeah, – he's, he's, he's progressed. He's not actually a student, but he hasn't learned anything. And the dad – look, honestly – like there's, I guess, supposed to be this this emotional and um, like, I guess, climax or catharsis in the fact that the dad does show up to the race. He shows up, and he's he there to yes. to embrace his son and support him when he wins. Um, but at the same time, I'm not sure the dad learns anything either because he's still probably out cheating people out of their money for their cars. He's still clearly by that last shot not wild about Europeans or he's any- riding a bike though. He's riding a bike. That's the thing. That's true. There's he's a, riding a bike through campus. And he's across campus. Dave's yes, across dad is campus. riding a bike. Yes, across campus. But this follows. He has a line earlier on. He's suggesting to his own wife at some point that he thinks Dave is not only too stupid to get into college, but too worthless to get a job. Basically, he's useless. That is his opinion about his own son. And that's like, oh, maybe 60% way through the film. Like literally, right before the, shortly before the race. So his turnaround is rapid, and it, it entirely comes, it it does entirely come bef- right around the time Dave gives up on the Italian dream and and his obsession with the Italian is the Italianness of cycling and the the, the his heroes, um, and somehow that may maybe mellows the dad out. Um, but it's, I'm not buying it. Like, there's not a whole lot of arc to any of these characters. Um, I don't know what the hell happens to Cyril. Don't know what happens to Butcher. Um, not sure there's any growth. Daniel Stern is, like I said earlier, he's basically in here's comic relief. Effectively, I might add. I do like Daniel Stern in this movie. Yeah. Um, quite a bit. But there's not a whole lot to Cyril. He's just there for humor. I've more or less reached the end of my notes. TJ, do you want to talk about that bike race scene that ends the movie the last maybe 15 minutes or so? Yeah. Uh, One of the things I appreciated about the bike race scene was the way that it was shot and that it was not scored. Um, Mm, Yeah. And particularly the... (laughs) Particularly the last, like, two laps of it, the way that that's shot. It's one shot. It's one shot. It's all one shot. Yeah. From... High above, um, almost as, if, as though like if if it were telecast. Yes, basically. exactly. Yes, yes. And I couldn't help but think. First of all, the fact that they do that in one shot, what that means in terms of having to plan and time the racing of that was pretty incredible. Yeah, but I, I like that a lot. As, yeah. as I was watching it, I was thinking, you know, nowadays this is gonna, and this isn't a slight against this movie, but it's gonna get the Ford v Ferrari treatment, where you're gonna have cut to pedal, cut to sweat, cut to handlebars, cut to screaming, cut to crowd, cut, you know, and it's gonna be like this thing, and to just kind of let it play out in the way that you're watching. Um, the the kind of graceful movement of the bicycles there and it becomes a little bit of a dance and a choreography that I really I, I don't know I, I just thought it was a unique way of doing it in a in a simple way of doing it and I liked that it's effective because it's not it's not forcing any emotion but not saying that there's not an emotional reaction from the audience you have it because you're rooting him on you want him to catch the 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 Sigma Tau guy 
And you're invested in a natural way just as if, like you said, you were watching it live. Just as a lot of people – we're recording this, by the way, on Super Bowl Sunday. A lot of people will be watching the game tonight. The reactions they have to the game while watching it, those are the kind of unforced reactions that you have watching that scene, I think, in this movie. What I was thinking of was like the Olympics. Yes. Wherein for – Three years and 11 months, I could give a shit about speed skating. But then once, like, Apollo Ono laces up and puts on his dumb yellow helmet, I'm suddenly, like, really, really invested for about 10 minutes. And, like, I really, really care for 10 minutes. USA. USA. (laughs) Every four years, go go U.S. curling team, man. Come on. And that was the vibe where, like, you're watching a speed – it's – again, it's shot the exact same way where it's, like, uh, like you're in a stadium and the camera's up in, like, the rafters and you're looking down on the action. And, like, that's how it's shot. And, like, that that was the vibe I got where, like, I didn't really care that much that there's a stakes problem here. I don't really feel the stakes of this race. But when you see the final two laps play out in real time without a cut from that vantage point, you just, like, kind of inherent. They're like, okay, when's Dave going to make his move? When's Dave going to make his move? And he finally does on the last turn. Mm -hmm. Sigma Tau chokes, actually. I feel like Sigma Tau – we didn't talk about that. Sigma Tau absolutely chokes at the end of this race. But but then Dave wins by half a a wheel, and it's really exciting. Uh, This is an insignificant note, but the main Sigma Tau douche looks like a cross between Tom Cruise and Jacob Elordi. I was thinking Jacob Elordi, yeah. 1,000% watching the Sigma Tau lead douche. The unnamed lead douche of Sigma Tau. Yeah. <laughs> um, I that's do, the movie. Well, I do want to that's, bring that's up the movie. that scene compared to it earlier. Because there's a, there are two scenes that really stand out from this film if you read any of the reviews. Like the contemporary discussion when this film came out. It's the race at the end. And then earlier on, he's drafted behind a semi-truck on the interstate. TJ, yeah, I was gonna say TJ, you're just wagging a finger. I got a big effing note about this. <laughs> At some point, given that he's behind it, he's yes. going sixty miles per hour on the bike. Correct. And I was like, "Huh, I'm not a very fast bike rider, but can human beings ride a bike this fast?" The fastest recorded unaided bike ride velocity is fifty-one miles per hour. But he's aided. He's drafting the truck. Yeah, he's in its wake. I call shenanigans on that. I'm sorry. You're wagging your finger again. Yeah. Okay. No way. Uh, that apparently had a pretty strong reaction. I'm struck, though. That scene does a lot of what you were just saying. The, the race scene does not do. It's a lot of cutting between the driver, the speedometer. It's a long scene. It is. It takes a while. It could have been, it could have been edited down because it does take a while. And it's all for, in part, not only is it like, look how good he is, but it's also for a punchline. Because the truck driver ultimately gets pulled over for speeding. Yeah. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. It's all for a joke. Um, yeah, I, I didn't like that one as much as what we're talking about. The next time we see real race. Well, that's not true. There's the racing with the Italian guys, but that just ends in violence. Um, when we get the actual race, though, the race is effectively shot. Really effectively shot, I think. Um, the whole thing. The last, the last couple of laps are the best part. But I'm I'm here for the whole thing, particularly with you never see them, but the announcers basically serving as the the score for this that entire race is fantastic. Okay. Although I, their announcing is kind of uh, supplying it's very a lot movie-like. of it yes. is. It's like hmm, yeah. 
Sigma Tau is really slowing down now. It really seems like Dave needs to make a move soon. <laughs> like, like <laughs> it's kind of telling you, like, hey, if you're not really paying attention, this is what you're supposed to be focused if, on. If you're folding laundry while you're watching this, which I might have been, <laughs> not admitting anything, yeah. it's very helpful uh-huh. to like the points of what the audience should be focusing on. Yeah. Yes. It's almost like they're there just for our benefit and not actually to commentate the actual race for people. That's interesting. (laughs) Can I ask? I have three questions. Can I ask them? Yeah. So the whole business with the the refund that causes his dad to have a heart attack and nightmares. Refund. Um, Refund. So that scene where Dave is working with his dad and then they they push that car back in and want the refund for the 90 days. The college Um, kids who were sold a car by Dave's dad want their money back yes okay i am a little bit confused here do you guys read that as he did make the money back guarantee after 90 days and then he's like oh it's not in writing you can't do anything about this or is this another instance of something that's prevalent throughout the movie which is the the class conflict the chauvinism of the college people trying to pull one over on the cutters oh 100 he made the promise verbally yeah, it's the first one, I think, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Okay, Cause... okay. That's what I thought, but then there was something later in the movie that I can't exactly recall at the moment. That Oh, well, he Dave apologizes. Dave apologizes and says, I used to think it's after the race where the Italians spoke him in the wheels. And he says, like, I used to think everybody was honest, but now I don't believe that anymore. And he's crying. His dad's like, what's the matter? Did you lose your wallet? Um that seems to me like Dave is saying there, oh, you were right. Those guys were trying to pull one over on you, and I just assumed they were innocent. No, I think— Well, he may have been, he may have been talking about his dad uh, yeah. as his, well. His dad you know? was cheating. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because okay. Also because, like, his dad doesn't deny that he verbally gave them a, right. a 90-day money back guarantee. Right. All he says is, like, did you get it in writing? Yeah. No, you didn't. Okay, then it didn't happen. Yeah. You know, so— Okay, that's how I initially yeah. read it. But then when Dave comes back, I was like, oh, am I— Okay. Uh, question number two. Uh, Josh, is this a hangout movie? Yes, for the first half, for sure. Okay. And um, I kind of, you know, the, the setup for the bike race and them entering the bike race, you said it was like an eight-second scene. I thought it was pretty sweaty, a bit of a sweaty setup. <laughs> and, like, it, I, I almost prefer the plotlessness of the first four to five minutes than the plot, the plottiness of the last half just because it, it seems kind of half-baked to me. So even when there is plot, it is a little undeveloped and so i prefer like the intentionally undeveloped hangout section of the first half for mm-hmm. sure yeah yeah um ken is the dad of fuss budget <laughs> absolutely border, why are you even thinking think, about this border, yes he yeah, is think, the problem is he's his his fuss budgetness is i think at times uh kind of overshadowed by certain other elements of his person like he's a cheat he's a bit of a he's a bit of a scoundrel. Well, he's a complicated fuss budget he's not um, just yeah. yeah but yeah i'd say yeah he's a fuss budget okay. particularly the way he interacts with his wife and certain expectations and his son and the way he, mm. certain expectations he has around the house yeah um i do i do i can't say i do love the scene where uh at near the end jackie Earl haley's having dinner with them <laughs> and finds out that they're I didn't know people your age still. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> uh-huh. They're expecting another child. I didn't yeah. know people your age. You finished that. <laughs> uh, and my last question. So who are each of us? Who's the Mike? Who's the Dave? Who's the Cyril? Who's the Mooch? Uh, I think Ken is the Sigma Tau douchebag who's dating Kath. <laughs> And who beats up Cyril for his trouble? I? Um, I mean, like, no, do I get the Mercedes? No. Do I get the, no. I get the convertible? Uh, 
I think I think Dave has to be moocher because he married his high school sweetheart and uh, is responsible and has a job and lives in Chicago and all that stuff. No, you mean Ken. Ken has to be mooch. What did I say? You said Dave. I'm sorry. Ken is moocher. (laughs) Okay. Okay. For all the reasons I listed. Not Dave Spitz, friend of the podcast, (laughs) former and future guest. No. Okay. And um, I can be Mike. I guess just because I really admire Patrick Swayze's styling. Okay. And um. And you you, know, you played football. Uh, very briefly. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I did briefly so play football. That's true. Okay. Um, and I guess that means you are you're probably Dave's mom, putting on <laughs> Italian records and trying to be supportive, like subtly supportive, but also like not make your support too obvious to your mm. husband who's against it and that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah, and you're Oscar nominated. So. No, yes. That's one thing she and I have in common, Barbara Barry and I. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah. I will say, speaking of uh, Dave's mom, the scene where they're like maybe about to get it on, I love when he like slowly pulls the pocket protector out. <laughs> 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 that was pretty great. <laughs> I must have missed that. Uh-huh. Uh, anything else in the movie? I don't have that much. This is, this is, I don't have anything yeah, else either. this yeah. is such a, a light and kind of, it's pretty slight, fluffy movie. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you drew the comparison to Apocalypse Now at the start of the episode because it is quite the um, quite the disparate thematic <laughs> depth between yeah. last week's movie and this week's movie. No, and, nothing against this one, but and if you if you haven't listened to that one, that is going to end up being about two hours and twenty minutes long. And I, for one, you can you can hear me like tap out about two hours in. <laughs> And I had more to say, but I was just kind of fried. And I talked to Matt Holder this week, and he's like, "I had three more discussion questions," and was like, "We're we're we're done," you know. Um, so whereas yeah. uh, by so, comparison, breaking away is not not leaving us uh, wanting more discussion. No, we went on a tangent about proof rock. <laughs> we haven't hit the hour mark yet. We're like stretching this out. Also, so what it sounds like, TJ, is that we need to release a Apocalypse Now Redux episode, That's... not about the Redux version of the movie just a redux version of the podcast i think where so we bring an extra discussion question and so. then a final cut a fi- yeah. years later yes. yeah okay and we have to do it in french can i talk about the box office and letterbox mm-hmm. yes uh can you mention this did pretty well uh what i found online was it was made for 2.3 million and it made somewhere between 16 and 20 million dollars depending on which site you're looking at, yeah. what did you find box office-wise? So I did find, yeah, about $2 million was the budget I saw. Um, I found multiple sources suggesting it was roughly $20 million um, okay. uh, for total total box office intake. Adjusted for inflation, it's important to note that budget would have put it around $10 million or so, a little over $10 million. The adjusted box office then would have put it around $83, $84 million probably. Um, which is pretty decent for an independent film with a, a relatively, relatively speaking, smaller budget. And I don't know, I don't know how much um, uh, marketing this movie would have had yeah. I, I, as far as investment there. So this movie did pretty well because remember back in 1979, that's just a lot of butts and seats to make twenty yeah. million dollars. Twenty million. Well, granted, I, I just did a TikTok on my personal account about the box office of The Godfather, and twenty million was good enough, at least in the early seventies. So, like maybe six or eight years before this, a twenty million dollar box office would put you in the top ten for the year, yeah, for sure, um, if not higher. Um, for for the record, you said it would be adjusted for inflation around like eighty eighty five. Uh, somewhere between there. That's a, yeah, somewhere there. That's about what Poor Things just recently hit. So that's like your equivalent. 
hit, I guess. So the, they're, they're marketing that one quite a bit more than this is probably marketed. And there's, I mean, that's the first of a lot of similarities I see between those two films. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, they're, they're European, <laughs> tangentially. That's, that's yes. about the extent of it. The dad um, burps bubbles at, at the table. That's true. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Dave spends a lot of the movie naked. That's okay. Katharina yeah. shoves a peach up. <laughs> okay, let's 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 move on to Letterboxd. Um, on Letterboxd, uh, if you look at like the overall reviews, it's it's fairly tepid. Um, people seem to like it, but like it's a lot of like three and a half and four stars. But um, if you look at the top reviews, they're all like four and four and a half, and they're pretty like warm and complimentary. Uh, a few that <laughs> a few that I flagged quote. Wish I was vibing at the quarry with my vo- with my boys, riding my bike and rebranding as Italian. So I guess that person was really struck by Dave's vibe here. A movie so good it almost convinced me to get into cycling. Almost. And then someone said, I think this film may have literally given birth to Richard Linklater. Which again, is something that we alluded to earlier. Uh, Chariots of Fire thing I already said. Um, here's a bit of a longer one. Peter Yates' coming-of-age drama and part underdog sports tale. Breaking Away was a pure delight. The ending filled me with so much joy to the point I had a big smile on my face. It beautifully captures the vulnerability not only of youth but of the male identity. It quickly won me over with its nostalgic summer hangout movie vibe and cast of lovable slackers. No wonder it's one of Link- Richard Linklater's favorite movies. I have... It, so that's the vibe. Yeah, the, the film definitely has come kind of a summer movie hangout, which is ironic because it doesn't take place during the summer. Um, giving the schools in session, so it can't. Take... Uh, I, th- I think Little Five is a April or May event. Okay, so it's I spring. Think. Yeah, we're talking. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What well, the weather's starting to warm up, but the point is, it's not taking place over summer. Otherwise, there there wouldn't be students on campus to interact with. And two, I feel like that's being awfully generous to this film, describing it as being like perfectly, perfectly capturing everything that those some of these reviews are suggesting i feel like there's a lot of people probably posting who are of the age that they remember liking this movie a lot when it came out it's possible it's possible i know that one of the one of the reviewers is a contemporary of ours so he's definitely not but um i also noted that like people are responding to the the vibes and the hangoutness of it less so i mean that last one responding to the second half but i feel like a lot of people are responding the first half the hangout movie portion rather than the sports movie portion portion yeah and i think that's a that's a valid reason for you know liking or adoring a film but it is also the one that is the least easy to verbally defend or articulate your love of um i think of licorice pizza for example a film that i do not care for in the least but i think the two of you vibed with a lot and when we talked about it uh, frequently it was, and this is this is not a criticism, but it was hard for you guys to come up with kind of cogent, logical defenses of it because I think that it's like this movie. It's kind of a you you get on its wavelength or you don't. Is that fair? The the term is a vibes movie, TJ. Yeah, and yeah, Licorice Pizza is definitely a vibes movie, mm-hmm. and that might be hard to quantify. But yeah. like, hey, the vi- the vibes are the vibes. So if you're vibing with it, you're vibing with mm-hmm. it. So mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, I have I, I have no problem with people if they like this movie. I'm happy for them because, to be fair, this movie is filled with a certain nostalgia, I think, that or fondness people might look back mm-hmm. on this film. Again, particularly for people of a certain age or even – it doesn't even have to be people who grew up in the late 70s, early 80s. But as you get older, looking back on that time in your life, 
I get where this field probably could reach you, where you could react positively to it. And as we've described, it's a comedy. It's on the lighter end. It's buoyant, as TJ referred to it. It does have a, an uplifting ending, a happier ending to it, obviously. So it's a it's a pleasant film to watch. It's not by any means upsetting. Did you like it? I personally am not wild about it. No, I, I didn't dis I didn't actively dislike it, but it's just kind of it is. It's it's a charming little yeah. movie, and that's about it. TJ, did you like this? I did. Um, I'm not gonna. It's it, you know, it's not a gonna be an all time favorite for me. It's not something I'm gonna rewatch a lot, but it was better than I expected. I had a good time while I was watching it. I don't think it's incredibly deep as we've as we've hit upon, but. Um, I did like the it's it's also a movie that hasn't aged well and I don't mean that in the sense of like its social priorities are not in the right place I mean that it feels very very much like a a film that was placed in a time capsule and was recently just dug up if that makes sense in the way that like apocalypse now does not feel like that right and so watching it you have to you have to understand that that it's not really going to speak to 2024 in a really significant way but it does feel um, almost like you found a much loved copy of a novel in your relative's basement. That's a really good way to put it. And I kind of agree with both of you in the sense that like watching this movie for a Oscar podcast, talking about movies on for best picture, I think I am primed to not respond to it as much, but I'm also picturing had I just gone to, like, the new Beverly Theater, which is, like, a repertory theater that Tarantino owns, and, like, saw this, I probably would have really, really liked it. And it's – I kind of just put that together just now because I think uh, – not the last time I went to the new Bev, but one of the last times I went to the new Bev, I went for a double feature of American Graffiti and Dazed and Confused. That's a good double which feature. Which was just, like, an, an amazing double feature, an amazing night at the movies. I had not seen American Gra- Graffiti before. I had seen Days of Confused before, but like experiencing American Graffiti in that setting, which is just like, again, stepping into a theater from the 70s and watching a movie from the 60s and just like really, or, or 70s rather, excuse me, and just like really vibing with it and not really having like the expectations of like an Oscar movie or the fact that it made $600 million or that kind of thing, which is, which is the case in that movie, but like just kind of experiencing it, it differently and like, that is much more what TJ said of like finding a novel in your cousin's basement or something like that and experiencing it that way. And um, I, I guess I should say, I thought this was pretty good. I liked it quite a bit, but maybe I liked it less because <laughs> it was an Oscar nominee. But like uh, even before I read that on Letterboxd, I was thinking of Richard Linklater, um, like, you know, the malaise of people's resistance to transitional times in their life. That's a very Linklater thing. It's a very days confused thing. It's a very boyhood thing. It's a very, um, um, everybody wants some kind of thing. And um, I like that it's about a specific time and place, much like American graffiti, much like Linklater's movies, much like Nashville. I got Mm. a little bit of Nashville vibes from this a Mm. little bit. Um, I see a little bit of Rudy here, but I think the stakes in Rudy are clearer in here. They're a little bit more nebulous, but you know, it's unhurried. The setting is as important as any character. Um, And I think had I experienced this under a context besides an Oscar podcast, I may have liked it even more, but I think it's pretty good. You know, not bad. I think it's right for you to put it also the other way to put it in the context, because if you then we used to ask these questions and we don't really anymore. But if you asked me, like, what do you think of this film's best picture nomination? I would be like, I actually was going to ask you. Oh, yeah. OK. Um, the best thing I can come up with is Coda. 
which one best picture <laughs> but again is just kind of like a okay don't really get that don't think this is going to age very well uh, i'm i'm fine with coda but like the fact that coda was up in the same sentence and beat something like drive my car is insane to me right how the dog um aforementioned licorice pizza correct yeah, yeah it's the fact yeah. i'm dune i'm on i'm on board with that thinking as well like i said i don't think breaking away by any means is a bad film um i think it's if we're talking about it being a vibe film it's just one that i'm not really on its wavelength unlike ironically we're talking about american graffiti nashville link letter movies i i get those and i think part of it is because i just identify more or find something interesting about the characters that i just wasn't really finding with this particular movie um, and all of, part of it, yes, is my reaction. Probably, I can't separate my reaction to watching the film from my knowledge that it has five Oscar nominations. And as TJ alluded to earlier, it wins the Oscar for original screenplay. And it just, over all that jazz, yeah, it just doesn't like. I don't. I'm not getting it. I'm not getting the the level of love for this film, other than the fact that. You probably could have watched this after going to see Apocalypse Now, and it would have been a really nice palate cleanser just to calm you down a little bit. Good double feature, yeah. Um, uh, like they could have done like a, like a Barbenheimer, like a Apocalypse Away or a Breaking Now sort of. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah let's talk, yeah. We're talk about the Oscars, though. In addition to the original screenplay and picture nominations, it wins screenplays we mentioned. It also gets a directing nomination for Peter Yates. It's his first of two career nominations in that category. Uh, it's nominated for Adapted Score for Patrick Williams, No Relation to John. And, of course, there's the Supporting Actress nomination we referenced earlier for Barbara Barry, who plays Dave's mom. Have we talked about how there was two score nominations back then? Because I don't think I realized that. Yeah, there was a, there's an original, like, they're both, they both have original, I think, in the title. One is more of an adapted screen uh, score which I think this technically was couched under. And then there's another yes, one okay. that is... Best best original score and best original song score and its adaptation or adaptation score was the name of the category. I don't know what that means. Yeah, I don't know how to parse them apart because they're both... They're both they both merged into original score. At um, least it's yeah. not like 1944 where they nominated 33 films for best <laughs> score. <laughs> well, because... But at but, least back then it was easier. Like, there was a musical category and then there was everything else sure and but okay so this 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 lost picture to kramer versus kramer it lost director to peter benton kramer versus kramer it lost best supporting actress to uh the meryl streep train and kramer versus kramer and it lost best adapted score to all that jazz the other movie in the category was the muppet movie <laughs> oh, yeah. the muppet movie was nominated for best adapted score whatever that means um yeah, that that I was saying, the Muppet movie is nominated, and also a Rainbow Connection is nominated. I forget what it loses to something something I'm not particularly wild about. I remember that, but Rainbow Connection. That's best best original song. It lost to a Norma, a song from Norma Ray. That's it. Yeah, we'll get to that. I guess. Yeah. In the Written Ray by episode. Diane Warren. Yes. No. 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 <laughs> no. <laughs> Written by David Shire and Norman Gimbel. <laughs> David. Oh, David Shire. Well, we'll get to that in the Norman Ray episode. David Shire married to Talia Shire, sister of Francis oh. Ford Coppola. Yeah. Little nepotism. Uh, is, is that Jason Schwartzman's mom? That's correct. Yeah. So is that does that mean David Shire is Jason Schwartzman's dad? Uncle. Uncle. Wait. No, no, you're right. No, sorry. Yeah, you're right. That would make <laughs> okay. <laughs> would make him. Oh no, it would have been. 
No. <laughs> let's not go let's through the family yeah, tree of the Coppola company, Coppola family, in the let's, minute one twelve of the. No, let's let's the, stop the when we get to Nicolas Cage. Uh, uh, the riding bikes and uh, pissed blood. I've got the mug. He's holding up. I'm his, breaking his away. Mug. Okay, Dad. It's pronounced Italian. Off. Um. Before we delve into more Nicolas Cage <laughs> impressions, uh, I'm, I'm done. So, Ken, yeah. do you want to land this plane, or is there anything else? Uh, no. I'm, look, I'm glad we watched it. I can check it off. And you know, like I said, it was a pleasant watch. So, I guess... Didn't mind it at all. Uh, yeah. It's also a nice breather. 97 minutes. A, 97 minutes. A really nice yeah. breather, I think, right here in the middle. I'm not saying that any films are going forward are going to be quite like Apocalypse Now. But we're going back into dramatic territory next week with uh, Kramer mm. vs. Kramer. So join us it's again a tough next sit, week. Man. I, I have seen this one. It's it's a tough sit. It's uh my parents have a wonderful, loving, happy, long lasting marriage, but I understand if the if your child's a divorce, then Kramer vs. Kramer could be a tougher sit. So Or if you're just sitting apparently next to Dustin Hoffman, which we'll talk about next week, no that doubt. So yes. Yes. Mm. <laughs> or if you're a ten year old kid who watches your dad try to make French toast poorly, it's a tough sit then. Yeah. My final thought is just to draw our digressions together. Can you imagine a Nicolas Cage reading of Prufock? And that note, I think. Uh, <laughs> should I attempt it? Do you, do you want to attempt it? It'll, that's Patreon content, Josh. <laughs> the women come and go talking of Michelangelo. That's a little Keanu, but it's all right. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. All right. That's it for me. <laughs> I'm dangling on a pin. Whoa. Sprawling on a pin? What does he say? I don't. I don't remember. Yeah. Let's pull. Let's 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 have a reading of <laughs> this love song of Jeff Approved Rock to end the podcast instead of our instead of our outro music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, I'm done. L- listen, to Kramer's Kramer. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. And indeed, there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back upon the window panes. There will be time, there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There will be time to murder and create, and time for all the works and days of hand that lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you and time for me, and time yet for a hundred indecisions. And... I didn't want you to be this miserable. A little bit's all I asked for. <laughs>